Good morning. It is a it is a pleasure and a blessing to be here with you. Uh, I'm from Emmanuel Baptist Church, and I bring you greetings from the, all the brethren and the pastors and, and deacons at that church. And, of course, we hold you as our dear brethren, and so it's a delight uh, for me to have the opportunity to bring you the Word of God. And what David said earlier in, uh, as he was speaking and as he was praying, how do people live in this world without the Word of God? without the Spirit of God, without the grace of God, without knowing Jesus Christ. I can't understand that. It seems it, it's something that as days get, it seems that days get darker. Uh, it seems more obvious to me that it's impossible to live in this, in this world without Christ. I want to bring to you a message from these last verses of John chapter 14. Jesus was confronting a very difficult situation, of course, with his disciples because they were in a, in a state of great despair. And uh, I'm calling this, I've called it uh, Jesus' last will and testament because he is going to leave his disciples with something very precious and very important to them. And so uh, I've, we've already read the scripture, so let me go ahead and bow in prayer once again and ask the Lord's help as we look into his word this morning. Our Father, we do pray that the Spirit that you have sent would minister both to the speaker and to the hearers that we would benefit from your word. We thank you for this precious gift and we thank you for our dear and blessed Savior and we do commit ourselves to you now in this time in his precious name. Amen. I think it's always very important when you uh, go somewhere to leave things in order. I always make sure when we travel that we put everything where it can be found if anything happens. And so we want to keep those things uh, well prepared for any eventuality. Jesus has come in this portion of John 14 to his, the eve of his greatest test. His obedience has been perfect to his father, but now he's going to go to the greatest test that he's ever endured. He's been preparing for this event for all of his life, for all the years he spent on earth. Each step, each step of obedience was preparing him for the day that he would go to the cross and he would suffer that which he, his soul loathed and yet his heart embraced on behalf of his children. It is beyond human ability to comprehend the suffering and the anguish that Jesus faces. It is not only the greatest trial of our Savior's devotion to the Father, but also the greatest trial for his disciples' faith in him. And I think sometimes we look at the, the anguish that Jesus faced and yet we realize the disciples were very weak and they faced something that was for them uh, so distracting that they really couldn't embrace Jesus' suffering as they ought to have done. John 13 through 17, known as the Upper Room Discourse, represents the last moments spent by Jesus with his disciples before his passion. And it's an amazing portion of scripture in terms of its intimacy and tenderness as Jesus instructs his disciples. What would you say to these men who are now going to be uh, minus your presence and uh, as Jesus went to the cross, what would you say to people in such a situation? Well, these are the words of Jesus. It's an intimate, complete, uh, very passionate discourse that John only records for us. And so we look into this. He has washed their feet, and that was told us in chapter 13. He's instituted the Lord's Supper. He's announced his betrayal, and his betrayer has gone out into the night. And he's also warned Peter of his brashness and boastfulness. 
He is preparing them for his departure. Again, imagine being constantly with the incarnate Son of God for three and a half years and now facing his, in, his imminent departure. Uh, they must have thought uh, this would, would be the end of everything for them. And sometimes people have said, well, I wish I could have been there during the time when Jesus was on the earth. And Jesus, Jesus has something, something better for us. And he tells them that as we come in this passage. The disciples are sad, confused, and somewhat despairing. They still have no idea what is coming upon him and upon them. Try to put yourself in, your, in their place when you read these accounts in the scripture and uh, we could maybe have a better appreciation for how difficult it was for the disciples. Uh, oftentimes we look at Peter because Peter is an example for, of the failures of the disciples and uh, we can identify with him that we recognize we are very much like him in many ways. And so we have four things this morning from Jesus' last will and testament. The first thing is the helper that he is giving them. The second is the peace that he is giving them. The third is his going to the Father and what that means for them. And then fourthly, that the ruler of this world is coming and what that means to him and to them. And so the first point I want to look at this morning is the helper will teach you. He says this, and I'm reading mine uh, from the New American Standard. He says, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So the first thing, Jesus reminds them of the context within which he had been teaching them. He says to them, I have been with you all this time teaching you. I've been in your presence. You've been in my presence. We've been physically together. And you've seen me and you've talked with me. You've handled me. As John would say later, we've, we've handled the things concerning him. We've touched him, seen him with our eyes and beheld him and handled uh, the, the word of God. And so he says, this is the context. He speaks in the perfect tense. All these things have had an effect upon you and they're completed with still having an effect upon you and now they know that he's going away from them and they will no longer have the benefit of his physical presence. They were very slow to understand and we should understand that we're the same way. Remember in chapter two of John, they didn't understand what he meant when he said, destroy this temple and I'll build it in three days. They had no idea what he was talking about. In chapter 6, he has to say to them, will you also all go away? And Peter says, you have words of eternal life, to whom else shall we go? But they didn't understand what he was talking about when he spoke of their being chosen by God. Chapter 13, when he washed the disciples' feet, Peter was quick to say, no, no, don't wash my feet. I must wash your feet. Then wash all of me. I don't need to wash all of you. And uh, they didn't understand what he was doing when he did that. Even in Matthew 16, when Peter made his great confession of who Jesus was, we find that he turned around immediately and said, no, this will never happen to you, not understanding why Jesus had come and what it was his purpose to accomplish on the earth. And so the disciples were very slow to understand, and Jesus tells them it would be better for them when he went to the Father. Now, that's kind of an amazing statement. Their, their thoughts were, well, certainly it's better for us if you stay. They wanted him to stay with them and not depart forever. And yet their understanding was limited. They did not understand it was better for them. So Jesus describes for them the new situation in which they will learn of him. And he says this, when he leaves, they will have a teacher and a remembrancer, as one commentator put it. A remembrancer, someone who would bring to their memory everything that Jesus had said when he uh, went to the Father. 
He will prepare them for every good work. And he says their works will be greater than his because he's going into the presence of the Father. It is the special office of the Spirit to open the eyes of our understanding. And as we've prayed several times this morning, I hope that you've prayed before you came to worship this morning that the Spirit of God would open your understanding to receive his word. And just that as I've prayed that the Spirit of God would open my tongue to bring his word forward. Without the Spirit, we can do nothing. Without the Spirit, we can't understand the Word. We can sit under the preaching of the Word day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and not benefit anything from the Word of God. And so we recognize the Spirit is the, is the, the one who brings, teaches us all these things. He says, He will teach you all things. And so everything we need to know will be taught to us by the Holy Spirit as He works in our heart through the Word and as the ministry uh, of Jesus being present with us through his spirit. And he will bring to our remembrance all that I said to you. So one of the spirit's principal tasks task is to remind the disciples of Jesus' teaching, and thus in the new situation that comes after the resurrection, to help them grasp the significance of all that had taken place. Because you find the disciples show that they understand things after Jesus has risen from the dead and meets with them. And thus, he will teach them what these things meant. Well, what does it mean by the words, in my name? Jesus said, the spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you. And so he means first on the ground of the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's because Jesus has finished his work accomplishing all that the Father gave him to do that he can send the spirit into the world to teach them about those things. Apart from completing his finished work, there would be no sending of the Spirit and no gift of the Spirit and no help from the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's also an answer to his intercessory prayers. We know that he ever lives to make intercession for us and his Spirit works within us to carry out his intercession before the Father. It also means when he says in my name that he is speaking with his authority and power. So the authority and power of Jesus are upon the ministry of the Spirit to his disciples at this time and then through the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to us as well. And so the Spirit would not be a builder of new revelations, but the one who reveals those things that were already revealed. And although this applies to the disciples directly, it also refers to the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost, and therefore the promises Jesus made are for us. So it would not be better for us to be able to go back in time and walk with Jesus where Jesus walked, and see him and behold him and say, oh, if I could only get a glimpse of his face, if I could only spend time with him, if I could only touch him, that would help my life so much. It wouldn't. The Spirit of God was Jesus' purpose to teach us who he was and what he did and to make us, allow us to know him as we walk in these difficult times and in this difficult life. The Holy Spirit enables us to understand what we thought that we had often read or heard to no purpose. I heard the gospel many times in a faithful church before I ever believed it. And it was the Spirit of God who came and brought it with power to my heart at the University of California at Berkeley, that bastion of Christian, uh, of Christian uh, teaching. Uh, that's where I heard the gospel. And I heard it there just as I'd heard it in other places, but I heard it with understanding. And God saved me by his mercy and by his Spirit. Outward preaching will be vain and useless if it is not accompanied by the teaching of the Spirit. I had the privilege of, to minister at the Union Gospel Mission on Thursday and preached uh, on, uh, to, the, to the people who were there. And 
those, the people who are there, uh, they have heard. There have been many who have heard and come to faith. And I go in the confidence that the Spirit of God can work in a place like that, just as he can work in a place like this, just as he can work at Emmanuel Baptist Church this morning to save some who have come in without Christ. And uh, it's that confidence that gives us boldness to preach the Word of God because we know that God's Spirit is alive and is working in the hearts of those um, who, to whom God sends him. Jesus sounds in our ears by the mouth of men, fallible, weak men, who preach the word of God by the power of the Spirit, and he addresses us inwardly by his Spirit to bring those words to fruition in our hearts and change us. Light is the first thing we need because we live in darkness, and he gives that light. It is his special office to, quote, open the eyes of our understanding. And so we ought to pray when we pray for our loved ones. We ought to pray when we pray for ourselves. Lord, open the eyes of my understanding and let me understand things I have not understood before. I may have read them, I may have heard them, but help me to understand them so that it affects my life. Major implications of this truth that Jesus gives about the sending of the Holy Spirit. First of all, on fulfillment of this promise to his apostles, the credibility and ultimate divine authority of the New Testament is founded. Now, what I mean by that is, when we think about the Bible and someone would say, well, the Bible was written by men a long time after these events happened. Their recollection of events, we always forget things. They're all a little different. You can't depend upon the reliability of these people called apostles. After all, they were fishermen and, uh, and other things. They, they weren't scholars. How do they remember all these things? They didn't write them all down. Well, we have the power of the Holy Spirit is what made them remember and write down the scriptures exactly as God intended for them to do. The memory of man is best at weak and treacherous, but the knowledge of the Spirit is unerring and infallible. And so when we, we have our Bible, our faith rests not upon the testimony of man alone, but on the testimony of men who were born along by the Holy Spirit, as Peter tells us. And so we have a word of God that we can depend upon because the Spirit of God brought to their remembrance everything that Jesus said, and they wrote it down exactly as he wanted them to write it. And so we have confidence in this book. And when we open the scriptures and when we read the scriptures, we can read them with full confidence that this is the word of God. What a wondrous gift Jesus has given us in the sending of his spirit. No one can read the book of Acts without seeing that the 11 were different men after Pentecost. When the Spirit of God, think of, you think of Peter's life most dramatically, but all the, all the apostles, all of those who were his disciples, demonstrated the power of the Spirit as they went boldly into the world and as they turned the world upside down and said, uh, we, uh, we rejoice that we are counted worthy to suffer for the name. And so we see the power of the Spirit. The second thing that Jesus talks about here is peace. And uh, again, David mentioned that in his prayer and as he was talking to us this morning, the idea that we live in a world that is torn by turmoil. Uh, the disastrous things that have happened in this last week, it just seems like one thing after another. And there is so much war and so much violence in the hearts of men that's carried out uh, in, in the days of, in, in hours of history. But Jesus says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. 
And you may remember that he began the chapter with these words, let not your heart be troubled. And so he comes back to this, but he bequeaths to them the second thing of his legacy or of his, of his will and testament is peace. The word peace reflects the Hebrew shalom, which was customarily a word of greeting and farewell. It became a standard greeting after the resurrection because in Christ's resurrection from the dead in his suffering and, and death and resurrection, there is peace for all who trust him. The Lord draws a vivid contrast between what will be the state of the world and the state of his disciples in just a little while. Uh, the world would be at peace in one sense, in their own minds, when they put Jesus to, the, to death on the cross. The enemies of Christ triumphed, or so they thought. The devil triumphed, or so it seemed. But there would be no peace for them. But there would be peace for the disciples, those disciples who would go to a, to a, a painful and shameful death following their Savior, they would know the peace of God which passes understanding. And so they would know peace that, uh, that the world would not know. Though they are in turmoil at this time, Jesus promises them peace. Now how many of you, uh, you may think back of a time when you were, your heart was just churning and things were just all disheveled and you didn't know how you could go on and somebody promised you peace, encouraged you in the peace of Christ and you thought, that's not helping and yet, Jesus tells them, I leave you something that is real, and it follows the gift of the Spirit. The Spirit will bring you this peace. It will be peace within, not peace without, because they didn't have peace without. They had turmoil without, but the peace was an internal peace that only the Spirit of God could bring. He speaks of a peace that the world does not know and cannot know. And that's why when we, when we look around and see the sadness that's around us, it should break our hearts. And we ought to recognize this is an opportunity to tell people about the peace that Christ can give and to offer that peace to them and, and to show them that peace by the way we live. And of course, we have to have a testimony that would match our words if we want people to take us seriously. The world has no ability to give peace. Uh, I'm a history teacher, and one of my favorite illustrations of this is a, is a well-known visit of Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister of Britain, to Germany, September uh, 30th of 1938. And he came back after meeting with a man, a little man with a mustache, and said, uh, I, bring, I bring back peace from Munich for the second time. I believe it's peace in our time. What Chamberlain saw as peace for the world was nothing but a sham. And, of course, World War II uh, began uh, less than uh, less, or just over a year later in, in September of 1939. That's the kind of peace the world knows. It's an outward peace that is only a, a, the putting down of weapons. It's only the signing of agreements that are quickly broken. It's only the uh, the, the promises that are are uh, soon quickly broken, and uh, we recognize that there's no peace. The Pax Romana of the Roman Empire, the famous Pax Romana, the Roman peace that lasted for a long time, was achieved by a mighty sword. The Roman army was able to carry out the Roman peace. The peace Jesus gives was procured by the death of an innocent man. And so Jesus gave us peace by suffering a violent death at the hands of others and going as a lamb, as it were, to the slaughter. And you've, you've heard about how lambs go to the slaughter. They don't fight, they don't kick, uh, they go quietly. Jesus went willingly and quietly and peacefully to the slaughter, having reconciled all those difficulties that he was struggling with by committing himself to the Father and the one who judged righteously. The world gives peace grudgingly and deceitfully. 
Well, okay, I'll put down my weapons. I'll give in. I'll give in. We'll have it your way. And that's the way the world responds in peace. And the world responds deceitfully, uh, proposing something and then turning away from it. And so we see that the world cannot give peace. The, the Christ gives peace cheerfully and sincerely. What he gives to us is real. And we ought to be experiencing that peace. The world gives but empty words, a mere powerless wish. When it says, peace be unto you. But Christ's gift is real, substantial, and efficacious. It works in the hearts of his children. The peace of the Savior then secures the life of his disciples. This peace he promises them will secure their lives. They may go to a cross themselves. They may suffer a violent death, and yet they will have peace, Jesus says. And, uh, and we need to remember that when we think about the things we may face. Some of us in our day, it may not be us, it may be our children, may face uh, violence because of their faith. And it could happen. It seems like it's always been far off. I used to think 70 was a long ways away. It's getting closer and closer. Uh, but, but the things that are far off will, will, may, may very soon come upon us, and we don't know that. This is Christ's last legacy to his people. He bequeaths them peace. He's not only the testator, the one who writes the testament, but he's the executor of his own will and testament. He will carry it all out. The peace that he bequeaths to us, he actually bestows upon us. It is the inheritance of all believers, whether high or low, rich or poor, Arminian or Calvinist. It is specially his own to give because he bought it with his own blood. He purchased it by his own substitution. He is appointed by the Father to dispense it to a perishing world. So when Jesus says, I give you peace, not as the world gives, we know that he speaks truth. And we know that we have that peace. And if we don't have that peace, then we have to ask, why do we not know the peace of Christ? What are we lacking? Do we not believe in the work of the Spirit to give us the peace of Christ? The peace of Christ brings composure in the midst of trouble and dissolves fear. Jesus displayed a transcendent peace through all his sufferings. Now think about the Savior as he's going. He's about to get ready and go to Gethsemane where he's going to sweat drops of blood. He is anguishing now because he's beginning to feel this weight of sin coming down upon him, this massive weight of sin that he's going to bear. And he's never sinned and he's never had a sinful thought or word or deed in his life. And now he's going to be made to be sin. And it, has, it tears the heart of the Savior apart. It frightens him. He fears death. He fears that he may not make it to the cross. And so Jesus, under this anguish and, and, and all this, in the midst of this, he experiences the peace of the Father, and he declares that peace to his disciples. And so we see Jesus, as he goes through the suffering, as he's in anguish, he's comforting his disciples. They should be comforting him. Yet he says to them, let not your heart be troubled. His heart is troubled, but he tells them, let not your heart be troubled, because he commits himself to the Father as he has them commit themselves to him and his spirit. The peace in Jesus' teaching is to be as characteristic of the dawning kingdom, that is the kingdom that follows his resurrection, as the presence and power of the Holy Spirit is. So as much as the presence and power of the Holy Spirit is known in this time after Jesus rises from the dead and gives the gift of the Holy Spirit, the peace of Christ is extensive as much as that gift of the Spirit. Wherever the Spirit goes, he produces peace. Why do we not know as much of that peace? Because we don't know the Spirit's ministry in our lives the way we ought to. Uh, some of us have been, uh, have been 
Uh, we've been pushed away from, from understanding the Holy Spirit because of some excesses that we've heard. We need to recognize the Spirit of God is the gift of Jesus Christ to his people. And the Spirit will minister his word to us and give us peace. Jesus bequeaths both the giving of the Holy Spirit and the giving of peace, fully providing all that is necessary to meet his disciples' fears. There's nothing you or I will ever face that God has not given us and that Jesus Christ has not promised us and left us as a legacy the, uh, the Spirit and his peace that's wrought in our hearts by the Spirit to face that. Nothing you will ever face. And I've thought of some things. As I get older, I think of, I don't know why, but I think of things uh, that, that frighten me sometimes. And uh, when those things frighten me, I think God will give grace whatever you face. And he is merciful to do that. And that's what the Spirit's ministry is. Now, therefore, Jesus then repeats his exhortation. Let not your heart be troubled. He's already said it to him. He says it again. Let not your heart be troubled. You have the promise of the Holy Spirit. He will, he will teach you all things and he'll bring to your remembrance everything I said. You also have my peace. Not like the world gives, my peace I give to you. I leave that with you. These are two of the things Jesus is leaving to his disciples. He also adds, let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And so he gives them an added admonition to encourage them. So how about it, Christian, this morning? Do you know the peace of Christ in your heart? You struggle with things to such an extent that it causes you to forget the promises of your Savior. Those of you who are in Christ and, and struggle with, with uh, times of turmoil, uh, know the peace of Christ. If you don't know that peace, why not? Isn't it time you start believing what Jesus has promised and live like you believe it? Uh, to the extent that any of us fall short of that, we need to be encouraged by this passage of Scripture because Jesus promises the Helper, who will come and help us. He's a parakletos, the one who stands beside us. As it were, like the lawyer, like the advocate, he puts his arm around us. He says, okay, you're facing this, but I'm right here with you to face it. Jesus is physically present, not physically present, but, but spiritually present through his spirit. And so his physical presence, which was limited to one place at a time, is unlimited in the spiritual sense by the spirit's presence everywhere. And so the Spirit could be in, with believers not only in Jerusalem, but everywhere throughout all the world. And so he says, it's better for you that I go away. If I don't go away, the, the, the helper will not come. Well, the third thing Jesus says is, I go to the Father. And uh, he says to them, you heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens so that when, I, when it happens, you may believe. So Jesus is again is preparing them for something that they have not yet experienced, but they will experience very shortly. But the first thing he does is he appeals to their love for him. And this is a, this is a tender thing. As the Savior says, if you loved me, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. They're thinking, no, we're losing the one that we depend upon. What are we going to do when Jesus is gone? We can't face this idea of Jesus leaving and going. They're not thinking about Jesus. They're thinking about themselves. And so he says to them, if you love me, if your minds had not so much concentrated on yourself, is, is the sense of what he's saying here. Jesus knew that they loved him, just like he knew that Peter loved him in John 21. He knew that they loved him, but he knew that their love was weak and that their love was, uh, was affected by their sinfulness. 
And so their failure to understand, their failure to trust him is also a failure of their love. And although we're not in the same circumstances as the apostles were, we are in the circumstances where our failure to understand the word of God and our failure to trust Jesus is also a failure of our love. And so our love ought to be deeper for the one who gave everything for us. And uh, we think uh, just a, a few weeks ago, uh, Bob Gonzalez, uh, one, of our pa- or one of the men in the church who preaches the word, uh, talked about the idea that the cup that the Savior dr- had to drink, when we sin, sometimes it's like we're pushing that cup toward him, pushing the cup for him to drink, is it because we're entering into the sins that brought him that cup. And so we recognize our a failure to love uh, is, is uh, a desertion of our Savior, when he has given us so much. If they truly loved him, he says, and the clear implication of his words is that they do not love him as they ought, they would be glad that he is going to the Father. There was nothing that which they would have had more deeply at heart if they loved him than his return to the Father. You think about when somebody goes home. They, they return to their family. They return to their country. They return from, from some difficult mission. Here the Lord Jesus Christ is going to accomplish his, his death. He's going to return to the presence of the Father where he had eternal joy. And they can't think about that. They're busy thinking, what are we going to do? He's leaving us alone. And this is not, this is not uh, to fault the disciples because we would be exactly the same way in his presence. That's the way we were. There's nothing they would have had more deeply at heart for him than his return to the Father. As it is, their grief is an index of their self-centeredness. And self-centered Christianity is very common in our world today. We all know it. We've all experienced it. We all uh, practice it at times. And this is what Jesus is rebuking in them. This has often been the repeated history of the church. Uh, one, uh, One commentator said this, Instead of the present selfish enjoyment of Christ's personal presence... Don't go. We want you here with us. Instead of that that selfish enjoyment, the power of showing love to him and apprehending his truth, it is good that you go away so that you can send the Spirit all over the world into all the places where your gospel comes. The power of showing their love to him and apprehending his truth, obeying his commandments, doing what he tells them to do, doing his works and participating in his life as it's manifested through the Spirit on the earth. He says these words, he says, I go to the Father. He's going into the presence of the Father because he is righteous and holy, and only a righteous and holy one can go into the presence of the Father. Jesus uses the words, my Father, 22 times in chapter 14. This represents for the Savior an advancement, not only of rest and triumph, to him, but the perfecting of his work. Not only does he go back into the presence of one who is perfectly holy without fear that he will be rejected because he was rejected at the cross, but he goes into the presence of the Father uh, knowing that he's completed all his work and it is done, it is finished, it's accomplished forever. He's exalted to a position of dignity and honor. Remember, his whole life on earth was a life of humiliation. From his childhood having to have his diapers changed having to be fed, having to be carried about throughout uh, the contradiction of men, of, of sinners against himself that Hebrews tells us about. All his life had been a humiliation. Now after these 33 years of humiliation, he's going to go into the presence of the Father. He'll be restored to dignity and honor. And this is what the disciples fail to grasp at this time. He says unquestionably, uh, he, he's going to take his place where the Father is undiminished in glory unquestionably greater than the Son in his incarnate state. 
So he says, I'm going to a place where, where the Father is in, undiminished in glory and I'm going into the presence of the Father to be embraced by him and recognized and exalted. And then he makes this statement that has confused a lot of people. He says, for the, I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And he's not speaking of filial relation, that the Father is greater than the Son and, and that the, there's a difference in the Trinity. The persons of the Trinity are all equally God. But Jesus is speaking of his relation as God-man-mediator. And so he takes upon himself the, the, the uh, form of a servant as he becomes a man. And in that mediation, he adds to himself uh, a negative characteristic, that is the, the human flesh. We, say, we call it sometimes subtraction by addition. He became less, as it were, by adding to himself humanity. And so he says, I go to the Father, the Father is greater than I. So we must learn again, as Jesus says, to rejoice in the purposes of God. Uh, not, Lord, why do you not answer my prayers the way I want? But rather, Lord, may you be glorified in the way you answer what I've asked. And that's what Jesus has done. He's asked the Father to take the cup, or he will ask the Father to take the cup, but he submits his will to the will of the Father. And so he speaks of a relation to one who is greater in the sense that, that God is uh, the Father who sent him, and God is also the Father who sent him to become a man. The reason he tells them beforehand is not for their pain, but for their spiritual benefit. And sometimes we're warned of certain things, and uh, we don't think they'll ever come to pass. And then down the road, it might be a week, it might be a month, it might be a year, it might be a decade, all of a sudden we experience that thing. And the reason we were told of that was not to give us pain, but so that we might be prepared when those things come. And so we think about the days uh, where we have things facing us in this country uh, that people in other parts of the world have faced uh, every day. There are those people today, right now, there are people whose blood is being shed because they believe in Jesus. And they're being put to death, and they're being hunted, and they're meeting in places, in, in caves and holes, as it says in, in the book of Hebrews. And so we don't know those things, but they may come. And we're told about those things so that we may be prepared when they come, that we might have the peace of Jesus Christ, that we might depend upon the ministry of the Spirit in our hearts, so that they should not struggle in the future as they did now. So Jesus tells them these things, and later on they're going to begin to put two and two together and say, now we understand these things because the Spirit of God has made them clear to us. And so he further promises to come to them. He says, I will come to you. Uh, he says, I will not speak much more to you, but he t promises he will come to them, and he will come to them physically in his resurrection after he rises from the dead, but he will also come to them at Pentecost by his Spirit. So Jesus promises to return to them himself, and then when he ascends into heaven, he promises that he will return to them by his Spirit. So we have the presence of Jesus with us every moment of every day. Uh, and we don't want to grieve or quench the spirit that God has given through his son to us. The last thing that we find here is uh, Jesus talks about the ruler of this world coming. He says this, I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of this world or the world is coming and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the father, I do exactly as the father commanded me Get up, let us go from here. And so these words, Jesus speaks of the ruler of this world. And he warns his disciples of Satan's attack. And he calls Satan by an interesting name. He calls him the ruler of the world. 
Now, it's interesting. I've always wondered about that because I remember when I read in Matthew, when you read the story of Jesus' temptation and the devil takes him up at a high place and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world, kingdoms of the world and he says, I will give you all these things. And my thought was always, these weren't Satan's to give. They never belonged to him. But Jesus doesn't say that to him. Jesus recognizes those things have been handed over to him in a sense because, as John says in 1 John, the whole world lies in the evil one or in wickedness. And I think Jesus did not get those things by virtue of just becoming a man. He had to complete what the Father gave him to do. Those things, he says, I will give you the inheritance, the nations as your inheritance. But that was as he raised him from the dead. We read that in Psalm 2 and in other places. So Jesus didn't just inherit those kingdoms by virtue of becoming a man. He had to go through a perfect life of obedience. He had to go through suffering. He had to go to the cross. He had to rise from the dead. Now they're given to him by the Father. He earned those things legitimately as the Son of God in a world that had been, had been fallen and in that sense was under the, under the leadership or the, ruler, the rulership of Satan. So all creation belongs to Jesus. That never changed. He must take possession, though, by right of redemption. And this is why Jesus has to pay such a price at the cross. He speaks of the world as a system of rebellion, so to speak. John uses a lot of different meanings to this word cosmos. But in this case, I think he speaks of the, those in rebellion to God. And so he talks about these things. And then he says about the warning of Satan's attack, he is coming with special violence and bitter wrath to make his last attack on me. Remember Satan attacked Jesus when, uh, when he was born. Remember the, how Herod raised up his hand to kill all the infants? He attacked Jesus in the temptation after 40 days of fasting. Then he approached him when he was at his weakest physically. And he attacked him then and Jesus responded with scripture. And, and, and it says the devil left till an opportune time. And he comes back to him now at the time of his passion. And he's going to launch a, a vicious attack on him. He's going to launch the attack in the garden as Jesus is suffering in anguish and he's going to feel the weight of sin. Uh, he's going to attack him on the cross when, the, uh, when they say to him, save yourself and us, take yourself down from the cross. If you're the son of God, save us and yourselves, as the thieves said. And so we find he's coming with special violence and bitter wrath. This is the last all-out assault of Satan. And Jesus is facing it, and as he's facing it, he's giving these words of sweet comfort to his disciples to prepare them while his own heart is breaking. He's giving to his disciples just as he always gives to his children as they trust him. He assures them of his complete victory. And this ought to be an encouraging thing when we read it. He has nothing in me. Now, if you think about it, you and I, he has everything in us. When Satan comes to us, he says, you're guilty of this. Yes, I am. And this. Yes, I am. And it could go on and on and on and on. And he has so, much, so many holes in our lives, we can't say, well, he has nothing in me. He has everything in us. David, Moses, every saint that has ever lived, the greatest of all the uh, spiritual leaders of, of Israel, the greatest of leaders in the church, he has something in every one. And so the devil has that which he can take hold of. And the only response that we can have is that we have a savior in whom he has nothing. And so he has all he needs in the greatest saints, but in Christ he has nothing at all, not one thing. It is no contest at all. Now sometimes people have had the idea, and it's been taught in some places and still is, that, that there's a contest going on between God and Satan as to who's going to win. 
There's no contest going on between God and Satan. It's over. It's finished. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant redemption was accomplished. Now it's only being applied by the Spirit from person to person, from decade to decade and age to age. And so he has nothing on Jesus. In the execution of this mission, he would endure the last sifting assault and and contest on the part of the enemy, and in doing that, he would conquer for us. And Jesus went to the cross on behalf of all of us who are his children. Since Satan has nothing in Christ, then why is is there such a fierce struggle? Uh, They might have thought that. Nobody asked him that. But why is there such a fierce struggle if he has nothing, nothing that he can speak of in Jesus? Well, he's providing one more thing. He's providing an evidence to the world of who he is and what he's come to do. He says, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. And so you could argue this, Satan has no claim, therefore Jesus is not bound because of Satan to go to death. Satan has no claim upon his life. He goes to death and divine wrath willingly. It's his choice to do this. He did it for the joy that was set before him. He despised the cross, or he endured the cross, despising the shame. It wasn't important to him that he was being shamed. What was important to them is he was, he was saving his people from their sins. To exhibit to the world the perfect love which he had to the Father, how even to the utmost of his own self-examination, where he, uh, where he questioned the Father in the, in the garden and examined his own heart, his obedience, his submission, and his suffering, he was now doing as the Father had given him commandment. The last thing he says to his disciples, I will obey the Father and do exactly what he tells me to do. There's no question about it in, in the mind of the Savior. And so might the world be won from its prince by the full manifestation of Christ and his infinite obedience and righteousness, doing the will of the Father and the work which he had given him to do, and in his infinite love, doing the work of our salvation. Uh, Charles, uh, Charles Ross put it this way. He, this is what Jesus, kind of giving, putting these words, the Savior could have said something of this nature. But though the prince of the world has no claim upon me, I freely offer myself to the uttermost powers of evil, to death, the last punishment of sin, that in me the world itself may see the greater power of love and so learn that the kingdom of Satan is overthrown. Not just any love, but the love of God. And so Jesus goes to the cross, or he prepares himself to go to the cross, and he says, right now, not waiting, not delaying, not anguishing, not trying to put it off, but I go to do exactly as the Father tells me to do. Get up, let's go. And he goes out to face his enemy and and all of his enemies to conquer at the cross and to deliver his people from their sins. Just a couple words of application. Charles Ross said this also. He said, If there is one lesson more than another which this passage is fitted to teach us, it is the importance of the Spirit's work. We cannot minimize how important the Holy Spirit's work is in our lives. And most of us get up, uh, when we get up in the morning, I doubt that we, that we uh, pray for the Spirit's work in our lives. We ought to. Uh, we, we can pray to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, but we ought to pray for the working of the Spirit. Help me to understand your word. Help me to live the life that you gave me in Christ to live. Brethren, do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Uh, that seems like a silly question. Of course we believe in the Holy Spirit. It's taught in the Word of God. But do we, do, do we believe in the Spirit to such an extent that it makes a difference in the way we live? 
There are those who believe in the Spirit in ways I think that we don't believe, and yet they seem to have more real belief in the Spirit at times than we do. We ought to recognize and understand clearly the Spirit's work in our lives. We cannot hear the Word of God proclaimed without the aid of the Spirit. We'll never hear it aright. We'll never hear it to our benefit without the Spirit's ministry. Secondly, consider how greatly the Savior has blessed us with his peace. It is a real and tangible blessing that his people should never forget. We have peace, and we need to know that peace, and we need to experience that peace even at the most difficult times. It's not hard to experience peace when it's peaceful, but it is difficult to experience peace when there's turmoil. When we're in, a, a, when we're in a, an automobile accident and there's a violent confrontation or something of that nature, when we have somebody who, uh, who, uh, who does something to, to hurt us, uh, those are times when we have to experience the peace of Christ by the power of his spirit and recognize that we need to, to trust him for that peace he's promised us. It is a real intangible blessing that we should not forget. How can we allow ourselves the torment as turbulent waves roll over our boat if Jesus is in the back of the boat asleep. We need to recognize our Savior is there with us. Christian, determine that you will know and enjoy the peace of Christ. How important it is to have our doctrine straight in this matter. Jesus has purchased peace for us, and it's not always a physical peace. You can be at peace when you're going to the, uh, to the gallows, or going to the execution block, or going to the stake, and there are testimonies, if, you, if you've never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, the story of people who go to the stake rejoicing and how they could put their hand out in the fire. That's beyond my ability to understand. But God gave them that peace at a time they needed it. And I believe if I were ever called to do the same thing, God would give me that peace at the time that I needed it as well. And God promises us that peace. Jesus Christ promised us that peace. How vital to know truly the work of the Spirit that he is to enlighten us and give us peace. And then thirdly, and lastly, let's bless the God that we have such a sinless Savior, a perfect Savior, exalted to the Father's right hand. Satan will never be able to bring a legitimate charge against our King and disqualify his saving work. You can save a lot of money and put it in the bank and have it all disappear. Uh, you can uh, have a high office and a, and a wonderful job and make a, a serious mistake and lose it. But you can never lose what Jesus Christ has accomplished. It's a salvation never to be taken away, never to be spoken against, never to be diminished or, re or re reversed in any way. That means that our salvation is sure and unchangeable. Now, there may be someone today who's here this morning who doesn't know anything about that salvation. Uh, we talk freely about the salvation that Jesus Christ be, brings to us because we believe everybody should know about it. Jesus Christ has come to die upon the cross for sinners and pay the penalty of their sins. He offers eternal life to everyone who believes in him and trusts him. He doesn't require us to jump through any hoops, to do any things, uh, to earn salvation. It is a free gift to all who receive it. And if you've never trusted Christ and you've never uh, known what this salvation means, uh, then I would encourage you to talk to uh, one of the elders in the church, to talk to me afterwards, uh, recognizing that Jesus Christ has offered salvation to you and uh, that you want to receive that salvation. May God give us grace to profit from his word and uh, may it be used in the hearts of any who are here unsaved. Let us go to the Lord in prayer as we close. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Thank you that in the midst of this turmoil and, and difficulty of his passion, he was willing to comfort his disciples with words that also comfort us. Help us to take comfort that we need day by day to live our life before you. Help us to, to bask in the, the peace that the Spirit brings to our hearts as he has been given to us by Christ. We pray that as Jesus is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us, we would resist the, the devil and he would flee from us. And we thank you that you have given us this uh, precious portion of your truth for us to consider this morning. In Christ's name, amen.